The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we've been uh, looking at the Buddhist teachings on the three characteristics. It's a pretty central teaching. It's the way the Buddha described, I mean, giving us, in a sense, pointing out instructions that when we train our mind to be present, which means we're not just in our thoughts about things, in our interpretation of what's going on, but we're in that more simple, immediate presence, like those of you on at home or those of you here in the room, you know, we're, a lot of us are orienting around our visual experience, because that, for most of us humans, is one of the most predominant and um, engaging of our sense experiences, what we're seeing. But it's so easy for us to actually not be in the seeing, but in the interpretation of what we're seeing. Because seeing is just that experience we're having right now, if your eyes are open and working. Seeing is just that experience of visual forms, colors, shapes being known. And then that related activity of perception, the mind interpreting the sort of raw data of seeing, that's another thing that can be known. But mostly we immediately get lost in the mental interpretation, the perceptual process. And we start doing riffs on whatever we think we're seeing, or whatever we think we're hearing, or whatever we think we're thinking, right? We, there is some sense experience, whether it's a thought or a sight or a sound or a touch, and then there's immediately the perception and interpretation, the meaning the mind, the thinking mind creates, you could say, and then we have thoughts about that interpretation. And that process of proliferation, mental proliferation, that's most of what our experience is made up of. Every once in a while we have a, an awareness of a more simple, direct, immediate seeing or hearing or touching or thought is just thought. And then very soon we're lost in it again, lost in that identification with our interpretations, our mental processes of, you know, we call it papancha in early Buddhism, it's kind of an interesting word, papancha, it almost sounds like what it means, mental proliferation, it's usually how it gets translated. And uh, so we've talked, you know, in the past months about the changing nature, like when we're not lost in papancha and there's more of this stability and immediacy of awareness, this is being known, this is being known, and what's being known is always the sensitivity through the five physical senses and the sensitivity we have to the activity of the mind. These are the only ways that the mind, the heart is sensitive. I mean, whatever you're sensitive to, you can put it into these six categories. You're either sensitive to some activity in the mind or you're sensitive to sight, sound, smell, taste, or touch. So we're sensitive in this way. And when we pay attention to 
what we're sensitive to, we notice that whatever it is we're sensitive to, it has this characteristic of movement. There's, in terms of what we're sensitive to, there's nothing static or fixed. It appears like things are solid because the meaning our thoughts construct, they construct a world that is permanent, like me, here, Minneapolis, right? But that's not our subjective experiencing of sight, sound, thought, emotion. They're all rivers, never-ending moving rivers of activity. Seeing is a river, hearing is a river, tactile experience is a river, thoughts, emotions are rivers, in the sense that they're ongoing, unfolding. And that unfolding process happens lawfully because of sensitivity. Even the mental activity, the way our mind, what our mind does with sense contact, the meaning it constructs about what we're seeing and what we're touching and what we're hearing, you know, our response and reactions to all that, that's also just a lawful, natural unfolding, right? It's just the play of these different causes and conditions. So the first thing we talked about is really having a more honest appreciation of how everything is in motion. And then whenever the mind, because of its conditioning, wants to manage the flow of our experiencing, that's what we call dukkha. Dukkha is that, I mean, it it can refer to just the ordinary mental and physical pain that comes our way at times. But in in a spiritual sense, it's more often used to point to the, the deep habit of, like, given my conditioning, given the underlying view that I have, I want to get on top of the flow of my experiencing. I want to manage it so it's the way I want it to be. I want my thoughts and emotions to be the way I want them to be. I want my external experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching to be the way I want it to be. Right? And uh, that when there's a sense of a somebody who wants the movements of conditions, conditioning, to be particular ways and not the other kind of ways, that creates some friction. Because nature, these rivers of causes and conditions, they're just playing out what's in motion. You know, it's just the continual unfolding of all that momentum, causes and conditions. And then what gets inserted in that unceasing free movement of everything is me who has preferences, my likes and my dislikes, right? And that creates the experience of friction or resistance. And that's what we, that's the deeper, more subtle meaning of the word dukkha that usually gets translated as suffering or stress in early Buddhism. And we want to get to know that. It's actually our most important teacher, just to be a little provocative. It's what will really teach us how to be more free, fully free and released in the messy world we already live in. 
So not like when we get to heaven or we get to some perfect situation, but right now, if we want, if we're interested in more degrees of freedom and ease when it's like this, then we have to get to know that place where nature is doing what it does, all these rivers of experiencing, of sense experiencing, right? So that's just nature unfolding because of everything that's in motion. And then there's these habits, deep underlying habits of mind to resist, to have to want to project an agenda or expectations on how our life, the moment, is unfolding. Even this moment here at Common Ground or online, watching this program. Some of you are watching this much later because it lives, as most of you know, online and our YouTube channel and dharmacy.org where we have all of our talks up there so people listen later. But we're all having a moment, and that moment is unfolding. And if we're projecting a me who wants to manage the moment, then there will be tension, there will be stress right then, then and there. And we can go, ah, this is dukkha. That's what the Buddha was talking about. Oh, and he says it's our teacher. The Buddha talks about three insights we have. There is dukkha. That's like that discovery. Because it's one thing to hear it and kind of get it intellectually. But then when you see it in its living colors in your own experience, directly, immediately, it's like, oh, that's that habit of mine. Things are unfolding as they are. And then right here and now with that unfolding is the mind resisting it or trying to steer it or trying to deny it or right and and we go oh yeah that's that squeeze that we call dukkha that the buddha was talking about right here i feel the friction i feel the resistance i feel the weight of that okay so the buddha says dukkha needs to be seen understood connected with observed and then we need that insight it has been understood right so it should be understood until it, we can say it really has been understood. There is dukkha. It should be understood. It has been understood. It sounds like the same insight, but there are kind of three steps to that. Like, oh, I get it. You know, even intuitively now, we probably all get, oh, yeah, I know what the Buddha's talking about or what Mark's talking about, right? Now, I need to really have that immediate, direct insight. Oh, yeah, this is what he was talking about. Now it's just not my intuition, but I'm really connected. Until there's nothing left to see or understand about it. You've so fully been interested and had brought a lot of integrity, like, yeah, this is relevant. What does the mind do when I'm in the flow of experience? Oh, its chronic habit is to resist or control or manage or deny and that always feels like this. There's a subtle or not so subtle squeeze in the heart when the mind does that. That's the second insight related. So one is change. You can't have that second insight without the truth of impermanence. So there's a truth of impermanence, the truth of unsatisfactoriness, which is a slightly better translation of dukkha, which usually gets translated as suffering or stress. And then the third, which we're starting to talk about now for the next few weeks, too, is anatta, which usually gets translated as the not-self, impersonal nature, 
empty nature. This is the more provocative one, harder to understand intellectually and intuitively. But the key here is to stay open. Humility is so important, especially with this third one. The first two generally aligns with most of our intuition, that everything is changing. It can be a little bit provocative because we sort of, whenever we think about it, we know everything's changing. But kind of there under the surface, the habit is this ignorant presumption that things are solid, that my relationship with this person is set, that my health is set, that my car's going to be out there when I go, you know. We just have these presumptions. And that's, we know we have that presumption whenever we're shocked in life, when something happens we didn't expect to happen. Because we had this sense of my thought about what's going to happen is permanent, it's real. That thought I have that my car is going to be there represent the permanent truth. And then when it turns out to not be that way, you know, like even, oh, we're pretty far into March, spring, you know, the sun is, we're not going to get any more of that winter stuff. (laughs) And then when we get, you know, I don't know if it's going to happen, but if we get one more storm, or even more than one more storm, it can feel like a personal affront. (laughs) Because we we didn't know it, because it sort of hides in the corners. We don't really, oh, it's probably wrong for me to be operating on the assumption that spring is here. Because it doesn't line up with reality. You know, weather is this natural, uncertain thing that there's a lot in play. And my idea that spring should be here is a very minor part of what's going to make things weather the way it's going to be for us, right? It's virtually has nothing to do with it, wanting or expecting, right? So aligning with the truth of change and the just the naturalness of when I resist change, when I impose my own opinion on how things should unfold, there's always squeeze. And the more we see the natural interdependent unfolding of everything, and that natural, whenever the mind imposes its agenda on nature, the natural unfolding, then there's a squeeze, there's some friction, some heat. All that begins to be seen for what it is, nature and not self. And then in little ways, and sometimes in bigger ways, we have an insight. This is that insight into anatta, the not-self, the empty, the impersonal nature. There's a moment, because it's, again, you might get it now, especially if you've been practicing and studying intuitively, it might make sense. And for some of you, it won't make sense, and that's okay. Just play with the information the intellectual level, until it starts to line up with some intuition that you have, and then dig in there, like bring that information, that view from an intellectual, you know, with, you know, it's information at the beginning, but then use it to get clear with your actual experience. Because the insight is, you're there in the flow of your experience, noticing your habit of wanting things to be this way and not that way, which is just nature too. Our liking and disliking is as much nature as the movement of weather or the movement of the stars or the any 
activity of nature, our liking and not liking, is coming out of the same soup as everything else is coming out of, which is just the interplay of these innumerable forces, causes and conditions, right? Or is there really a solid, permanent you when you're really liking something? Or really not liking something, really wanting something to happen? Or not wanting something to happen? We kind of presume, I really want this to happen. And you might even bring to mind one of your strong desires now, whatever it is. You really want to win the lottery or whatever it might be. You really want to grow up and stop acting that way (laughs) for those habits that we're embarrassed that we still have. Right? So you might tune into desire, but when you really feel and see and sense what that desire is in your actual subjective experience, you see that it arises naturally. You're not in control of it. It isn't you presume you're doing it, but that presumption actually happens after it's already happening. And then there's the thought, I'm doing this. It's me again. You know, and even that disgust, like if it's something you you're not in so happy about, even that shame or disgust is nature, not you. It's just the play of causes and conditions. And of course, conventionally, it's totally okay to talk about your emotional habits with your friend. You know, don't be afraid of personal pronouns. It's just a way, you know, that we communicate. We designate things. We designate our kid, you know, we give them a name and we give our partner a name and Common Ground Meditation Center has a name. But they're just ways that we can interact with each other and know what we're talking about. But whatever we're naming is something that is alive. It's unfolding. It isn't some fixed edifice that never changes. And so these patterns that we see, we want to see that they are empty of self. And we'll begin to see that. We'll see some shame cycle, let's say, if that's your thing. You know, one of your predominant emotional patterns to feel I'm not good enough or something like that. It's pretty common for us to have some version of that, right? So it gets triggered. But someday, if you've been practicing with some sincerity, formal practice, informal practice, some study, right? Then someday that pattern of feeling I'm no good, never been good, it's going to play itself out because it's nature that there will be this silent wisdom and awareness that goes, oh, that's nature, that's not self. That's just a natural, a natural process that is unfolding according to the forces that are in play. And it will be what it is, but from our so-called subjective point of view, now that there's some wisdom there, it will have a kind of semi-transparent, porous, lighter quality to it than we normally in the past have experienced. In the past, because we immediately identified with that pattern, we took it personally, then it personally felt heavy. Our heart felt the weight because of the identification. Having that shame cycle isn't inherently heavy as much as we might think it is. Being defensive, being the so-called needy one in the room, or 
whatever your personality patterns might be that you're not so happy about. You know, anybody not have one pattern in your personality that you're not so pleased about, right? But imagine that that personality pattern actually doesn't have to be a cause for stress and suffering. The cause, because clearly it has been a cause for stress and suffering, but the cause, when we get really in the weeds and, and see it without, like we're observing or witnessing it with no skin in the game, we're observing it as a naturalist, then we see the cause for the weightfulness of these patterns in our personality is the identification to the pattern, not the pattern itself. And it really teaches us something about freedom. Freedom doesn't depend on me having a different personality. Freedom depends on having a different understanding about whatever personality is expressing itself right now. Freedom doesn't depend on a different world. You know, the, the patterns, the systems of this world are clearly imperfect and you know, in different ways, different groups of people have way too much privilege and other groups of people have way too much exploitation, right, and oppression. And not even mentioning the animals and the plants on the planet. So it's messy and it's unfair, but it often can seem like we have to postpone what we might sense is the possibility of freedom until the world's a different place or my personality is different or this person in my life is different or my health is better and what the buddha and probably other wise folks have taught over the centuries and what people's actual experience spiritual experiences reveal directly immediately not theoretically not intellectually, but directly, is the unshakable release of our heart, the opening, the freedom that's available, doesn't depend on anything being different than it is. People have this experience. People in this room have had this experience. We tend to want to dismiss it, or we wrongly uh, interpret it by saying, oh, I I felt so much freedom, so much lightness, so much unconditional love, generosity of the heart, but it was because the weather was so nice or because these particular conditions happened to me. This person was so loving that I just felt free. You know, I felt so seen and held. I felt so much like I belonged. And we'll, we'll kind of try to pin it some external or whatever conditions. But it might be that those particular external conditions help the mind realize something that's always true. That the squeeze, the weight, the fear, the anxiety, the loneliness, the deep sense of longing that seems to be there in the background and then at times comes into the foreground, that existential uneasiness that really is so much a part of our existence. One of the things, I have mentioned this several times, so some of you might have heard this, but 
that really got me on my path towards um, being a student of the Buddha's teachings was reading a book called uh, Denial of Death by Ernst Becker. He won the Pulitzer Prize for it, and I read this, I think, in 1982, so a long time ago. And uh, there's all kinds of powerful things in that book, but one of them is he basically uh, psychoanalyzed like all the achievement that people do to kind of, you know, making doing good stuff with their life, whether they're raising kids in a way that's good, doing a good job as a parent, or they're, you know, writing a great novel that is meaningful for a lot of people, or whatever somebody does with that has impact. It's really, he, you know, his analysis was, it's really this denial of our uh, permanence. You know, it's this fear of our mortality and that existential uneasiness and not knowing what to do with that existential uneasiness. So I'll start a podcast or, you know. <laughs> and, and you, you know, we see these kind of obsessive things. Like, I think it's somewhere in the Midwest, I forget exactly where, that somebody in their barn has the biggest ball of twine. Right? It's like people do amazing things for significance, right? Because we need some significance. And something to make it seem like this makes sense. And what the Buddha was teaching is that what really uh, makes sense when we're grounded and integrated is understanding, bringing our understanding in alignment with the way it is. And that's the process that we're following this thread of freedom because all of the squeeze, the the dukkha, the friction, happens when we're out of alignment. There's this movement of nature. And you know, like a natural process, like how winter becomes spring here in Minnesota or anywhere, you know, the change of seasons, whatever that's like for where you live, there's no center to that powerful change. I mean, a lot happens when we go, especially in Minnesota, from winter to spring to summer. But there's no center, there's no control tower, there's no intellectual center to that change. And yet, it all knows what it's doing. And this is true with all natural processes natural process of getting sick, the natural process of healing from a sickness, or a bone healing, or whatever it might be. Societies falling apart, societies healing and putting themselves back together in a better way. And that's true individually, too. So when we align with nature, then we're aligning with what in Buddhism we call empty. It means we're beginning to sense what this moment or any moment is empty of. This moment is empty of the wrong idea that there's a permanent set me, I, me, or mine. Because that isn't here in the way we presume it's here. And as long as we're presuming it's here, 
then my relationship to everything else is out of balance. And I think I mentioned this when I first started talking about dukkha. The word dukkha evidently, um, at the time, you know, Pali language, similar to the Sanskrit language, so one of the ancient languages in uh, India, it means when the, the wheel or the axle is out of true. So the cart, you know, when the axle and wheel aren't really true, it's really a clunky ride. It doesn't really work very well. And that's a kind of an apt word for dukkha. Because when our understanding is out of alignment with the way it is, when unconsciously, because it's such a deep, pervasive view, the sense of separateness and me kind of being back there somewhere, all of this is happening to me. And because I'm so fixated on what's happening to me, we never get interested in that sense of the me it's all happening to. We never bring a fresh look to that sense of self. Do we? Have you? No. It's clearly the most relevant thing about our existence, and we just presume that our understanding, which has been there since maybe we were three or four, we got it right. <laughs> And of course, we got that because we were programmed to imagine this is happening to me. And then my likes and my dislikes take on this existential meaning because it's happening to me. Everything's happening to me. It's about me. Did you not know that? (laughs) And we might entertain that it's about you if we make this deal. Well, if you think it's all about me, then in moments... I'll, you know, privilege you with the idea that it's about you. But I know, even when it's about you, it's about me letting you know that it's about you. That's my generosity. Thank you. And we can shine a light. That's what this, because remember, these are insights into change and permanence. Anicca is the word. Into dukkha, the unsatisfactory the squeeze that happens whenever we're trying to manage the flow of our lives, the flow of our thoughts, the flow of emotion, the flow of what's going on around us, that creates friction. Because we're imposing on somebody who's outside who's going to use their volitional power to steer things, to manage things, to get rid of, to get... And that creates a sense of friction, which we wrongly use. Like when we do feel that tightness, what do we do? Well, of course I'm real. How do I know? Because I'm tight. So that's the real, that's samsara. Like it gives wrong view such stability because we turn the stress of wrong view. Because that's such an important feedback mechanism like, Oh, there's stress. Something is out of alignment. My heart feels heavy. I must be out of alignment. But what we do with that heaviness, that stress, that resistance, that squeeze, is we go, of course I'm real, because I'm hurting. So I better do more of what I've been doing, trying to make things the way I want them to be. So we double, we're always doubling down, doing what we've done before, getting the same results because we never 
get these teachings that are saying, hey, when you stabilize present moment awareness, you'll see that everything is in motion, that whenever you personally try to steer this thing, there's a squeeze, there's a heaviness, and that all of it, when you can really observe with this fresh, humble, curious, non-judging, not entangled way, you'll see that, you'll see naturally how impersonal it all is. It's not personal. It's nature. And we can get that idea, but we actually have to see it. And even if you're really grounded in the teachings intellectually, every time there's a little or a big insight, it's always surprising. Oh, it really is impersonal. And the aftertaste, even though it may be disorienting initially, the aftertaste is always that things are workable. The only thing that makes life and engagement unworkable is the self-view. When the self-view is teased out gradually, usually, it's just like it's so much easier to be all in. We're afraid of being all in to everything, our relationships, taking care of our body, taking care of the world, because it all feels so heavy being all in. It all feels heavy because it feels so personal. So what really sets generosity and love free, right? you can't really be generous and loving when we're tied to a self-view. Then it's a business relationship. I'll I'll be generous because I have to or because I want people to see me that way, I'll be kind or whatever. But real kindness, real generosity, it really arises. It's sort of the natural, unavoidable expression of the absence of self-view. Non-self, an anatta. But these insights are not like sequential. Kind of, you'll notice the more you dig into your practice and study, you'll just see that one of them just appears to you to be more relevant, whether it's the impermanence. The Buddha, in the tradition, we talk about them them as gateways. The gateway of getting interested in the changing nature, getting interested in the stressful squeeze nature of whenever we're imposing our idea, our view, and the impersonal nature. So you can just get a sense in your own life what you're drawn to. Because when you really see change, you're going to see the impersonal and stressful nature. When you really see dukkha, you're going to see it's impersonal. Suffering is not personal. When there are the supporting causes, there will be the squeeze in the heart. As soon as those supporting causes aren't there, like wrong view, self-view, you'll see that weightfulness, heaviness of your heart will not be there. You're in the middle of some drama, you're totally identified, and you'll notice, oh yeah, this heart hurts. And then all of a sudden, there's more space in your mind, and you realize, I was just making that up, you know, in the way that I've done a hundred times, but now I see it. And all of a sudden, it's like, what a moment ago was heavy is right now not a problem. What changed? Your view, your understanding changed. It's like a bubble got popped, and in that bubble, this view, this self-centered view dominated. And then you lived in that reality. When we have a strong 
self-view with identification, then that, like a dream, you know, when you have a dream that everyone's out to get you, right, then it's like a nightmare because that reality is your reality. There's no other reality when you're in that dream. And then when your lover wakes you up and say, you know, honey, are you okay? You know, and you realize, oh no, I'm safe. Then that dream, you know, you can still remember it, but you realize, oh, that was a concoction, right? And it doesn't represent this reality. And that's how we get pulled in. And one of the things, like in your, if you're going to stay for the discussion group in a few minutes, but even if you're not, you know, you can just find time to think this through on your own or talk with a friend, a good friend. But it's really nice to share with somebody who understands this capacity we have of going in and out of hell. Like we're in the vortex of some self-centered drama, and we really feel to some degree the weight of it, the heaviness, the difficulty of it. And then we step out, it's almost like we have more space and we realize, oh yeah, that's just that vortex of health, you know? And you can do this around global issues or around personal issues, whatever. And just, this is really good practice, actually both going into the hell where you like viscerally feel it and then stepping out of it, realize you can step out of it. Because knowing that it's okay to be the suffering one only can come from some semblance of wise view. Nobody would intentionally put on that costume and go into that hell unless there was some sense, that's just a hell of my mind's own making. And then to step out of it is like, oh yeah, and then to step in. And this is related to a lot of healing of trauma and other unresolved pain in our life is this capacity to know how to turn away from it, to step out of it, and to know how to step into it. Say, yes, you two belong, and I'm developing a capacity to be with you, to not be afraid of the costume and the mind states and the visceral, vibrational quality of this difficult state in and out, in and out. So that may be nice uh, in the small groups to talk about. And also at the end of the month, usually I I take a couple minutes and just remind everyone about this practice of dana or generosity. And it's not just about your relationship to Kamagam Meditation Center, but really about how we live. And it's a natural expression of emptiness, right? Because when there's emptiness and we're in alignment with that truth. We're not imposing a sense of somebody, me, being on the outside, but it's just this. Then our relationship with everything is characterized by the circle of giving and receiving, fearlessly, generously. And so just start exploring it and everywhere in your life, practice receiving freely. So like in terms of common ground, the invitation for 30 years now, we haven't charged for anything, including even our residential retreats, because we want the teachers and like our leaders, our board chair, and all of the people who make this place possible. We practice creating a place that is giving everything away freely, because it's a beautiful thing to do. And then for 30 years, there's this beautiful circle. People give back 
that people give back best when they've practiced receiving freely, no strings attached. We don't want people to give because you're here taking, receiving, right? We want you to give because it makes you happy to give, and we want you to receive because it makes you happy to receive. So whatever you get from watching the video later or being here in person or being here online or you know, all the different ways people participate in the community all over the country now, right? We're not just a Minneapolis-based place anymore. We want you to have some kind of relationship that's a cause for happiness in your life. No one can tell you how to do that. I mean, there are some practical questions. Just reach out if you have them. But if you give too much, it won't feel good. And if you don't give anything, even your good wishes and, a, and appreciation, it probably won't feel good. Now, obviously, some people don't have money to give. And that's why we op- That's one of the reasons we operate this way. We want everyone, makes sense, to be able to receive, regardless if you have time to volunteer or money to donate or whatever. But there is a way to be in every relationship in a way that has that circle of giving and receiving, even if all we're able to do is just be really appreciative or we're giving in another place in our life. You know, you're raising seven kids or whatever you might be doing in your life. And that's, you know, everything you got is flowing that way. And everything you're receiving is coming from wherever it can come from so that you can come into balance in your life. And so far, it works well enough. You know, we have this building, we have our retreat center in Wisconsin, about 83 miles out of the town here. And uh, have our paid staff and support our guiding teachers, Shelley Graff and myself and all the other teachers at the center. And it just happens in this circle of giving and receiving. So check in with us if you have any questions about that. Get yourself on the weekly email so you can hear about what's going on at the center. Lots happening. I know Shelley Graff is... Uh, not this week, but next week, going to start doing their Wednesday night practice group, kind of like Sunday morning, but led by Shelley Graff, the other guiding teacher, both in person on Wednesday night and continuing on Zoom. So feel free to come here starting that first Wednesday. It must be the 5th of April. And Shelley will be here on Sunday the 16th leading the group, and that will also be the day of our quarterly potluck, April 16th. And the kids will be here then. No kids program on the second. So I'll say goodbye to everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.